I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The time in Kiev is 9.28 p.m. Sunday, February 27th, 2022. Day 5 of the Russian invasion. This is Eric Fogg, host of Reconsider. And today we'll be talking about what seemed unthinkable a week ago? What if Russia loses? Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today we ask, what if Russia loses? And in you know my part one episode on Ukraine, one of the things I said was, there's no way Ukraine could win, but... And I was wrong. Uh, U.S. intelligence was wrong. Russian intelligence was dreadfully wrong. And Ukraine could totally win this. Um, and I'm actually going to be talking about some of the the principles and like the problems of studying war and trying to plan modern warfare that led to this shocking uh, David versus Goliath duke out in which David seems to be winning. Um, we're going to talk about why that happened and why that keeps happening um, throughout history. We're going to talk about the long-term geopolitical implications of what happens if Russia does lose. We're going to talk about how the world is changing. So we'll talk just a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine right now, because I want to be able to talk about, you know, what what makes me think that Ukraine could win. But, you know, of course, we look at this and we think like, ah, Ukraine doesn't stand a chance. But of course, well, the United States didn't stand a chance or the colonies didn't stand a chance against the Brits in the Revolutionary War. Vietnam was massively outgunned by the Americans in the Vietnam War. Afghanistan was massively outgunned twice. Right? The little guy can win. And, you know, again, I studied this stuff in uh, my bachelor's and master's program at MIT. Um, we understood asymmetric warfare. We understood that winning a war is not just a matter of material and um, manpower advantage or even skill advantage. It's a matter of willpower. It's a matter of a willingness to continue to fight. The reason that the Americans won the Revolutionary War was they were willing to keep the war going. Um, war has to break the will of the defender. At some point, people have to kind of give up and stop fighting, or at least most of them do. And the few that are left, right, you hunt them down and pacify them. But you need to get people, the defenders, to say, you know what, this is hopeless. I'm going to lay down my arms and stop fighting. I'm going to stop dying. One of the reasons the Vietnamese won the war against the Americans was that they were willing to just be slaughtered. They had such a fierce sense of nationalism and anti-colonialism that they were willing to just die by literally the millions in order to win. Are the Ukrainians willing, Ukrainians willing to die by the millions? Maybe. They probably won't need to. But that's what willpower can do for you. Right, A willingness to keep fighting and keep dying for something you believe in against an enemy who is not willing to keep fighting and keep dying. You know, The Americans lost 55,000 troops in Vietnam, and it was completely unacceptable to the Americans. They withdrew. The Americans lost less than 10,000 in Afghanistan. It was completely unacceptable, and they withdrew. You know, For the Russians, do they have the willpower to keep going? 
And it's not just Putin, right? There's a whole group of people here. Actually, one of the things I love so much about Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace is at the end, he has this like long, pissed-off commentary about how much he hates Napoleon. But he, he speaks wisely about the fact that you know Napoleon didn't invade Russia. 300,000 individual Frenchmen decided to invade Russia. Right when he said go invade Russia, each one of them individually chose to say yes. Right, he said human action is still a real thing here, and our, you know there's in the Russian army you have everything from the Spetsnaz, these like super elite commando types, um, to you know folks who are like totally brainwashed. You know anything that Putin says they believe. To you know we've seen videos of just these kids. These 18, 19-year-old, basically children. You know, we, we in the United States, we treat 18, 19-year-olds like children. And we let them act like children, irresponsibly, right? These kids that have been given a gun and a helmet and told to go. And they, they're crying in these videos saying, look, we didn't know we were going to Kiev. We thought we were going to Donbass to participate in peacekeeping operations. We thought we were there to just protect Russian people in Donbass. But a lot of these kids, they, I don't know how many, but some of them are just giving up. Um, or when they get captured, they're just you know horrified. And their morale is, is low. And again, we don't know how this morale, this willpower to fight, right? That's kind of what morale means. Willpower to continue to fight. Tactically, units with high morale, they're able to suffer losses. They're able to suffer pressure and keep fighting and keep fighting. And they won't break and run. That's what high morale militaries do. Dan Carlin talks about this brilliantly in the uh, Supernova in the East series that he does in Hardcore History. The Japanese have the highest morale of any army maybe ever in which they're just willing to fight to the last man. The, the very last person is willing to keep fighting and dying rather than give up. That's ridiculously high morale. Um, and then there's ridiculously low morale that we saw among the Afghan army when the Taliban attacked after the U.S. withdrew among the Iraqi army when ISIS attacked. You know, these guys that outnumbered their enemy 15 to 1 and had superior arms, superior intelligence, right? They just dropped their weapons and ran. That's the other end of the spectrum. And so the Ukrainians are probably somewhere between um, because they're not as, they're, they're probably not as like religiously fundamentalist, ideologically brainwashed, the Ukrainians, as... You know, folks like the Taliban are, where they think that, you know, oh, well, if I get killed fighting, I get my 72 virgins, right? Um, but they have very high morale because they're fighting for their home that they believe in. They have a strong sense of nationalism, right? They're, they're like Vietnamese. Um, whereas the Russians, what's their morale? Again, it's clearly distributed across their army, but you have some Russians of, again, high morale, and some Russians of very low morale. Again, who are just kids. This doesn't, you know, this sense of, like, having to bring Ukraine back into Russia, like, doesn't matter to them. So that's the stuff that you need to keep in mind going into this war about who's going to win, because how much morale there is is going to affect the strategic situation, where, again, you even have Russians that are, like, apparently just abandoning, again, I don't know how many, but you at least have some who are just, like, abandoning their vehicles and walking away because they don't want to destroy Kiev, but you also have a tactical situation where if you have low morale and you're pressing into Kiev and you don't really believe in dying for this cause, you're going to back out, right? And so all these attacks on Kiev have been repulsed. The Russians outnumber probably the Ukrainians in Kiev. Again, probably. Um, we, we really don't know the troop numbers on the ground, and it's going to be a long time before we see the whole story unfold. But... You know, if the Ukrainians put up really stiff resistance, you're in a disadvantage if you're trying to move in. They're dug in, right? And so, like, to cross this open territory, you've just got to, like, accept that you're going to be shot at as you move across, um, you know, no man's land. You have to accept that, like, rockets are going to fly your way. And, you know, you watch your buddy get blown up. You watch, you know, tanks around you get getting blown up. And you say, F this, and you pull back, right? And good command good tactical commanders see that and they go like okay we need we need to do an ordered retreat here or else i'm just going to lose my whole unit and so clearly the morale of the russians isn't that high at least the ones around kiev 
Russian forces have not meaningfully advanced since the first day of the war. They have some. Um, and, and it's hard looking at a map and seeing like territory drawings, right? So you can see some maps where like certain areas filled in. Um, but that filling in doesn't necessarily make sense. And it's because the Russians went for a blitzkrieg rather than a like take and occupy territory thing. And we're going to talk about this in a sec, but um, they probably they know that they cannot occupy all of Ukraine. And this is a big part of the problem for them. Actually, fine. We'll just talk about it now. The Russians, their their entire plan going into this was a blitzkrieg, right? Get to Kiev quickly, topple the government and have a fait accompli, right? Show up and say, like, look, we're in charge now. We own Kiev. Give up, right? Break the will of the Ukrainians quickly by striking so hard and so fast, you know, shock and awe, blitzkrieg, all that. And it was real, right? They came in with, like, tons of missiles, boom, 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 right? Try to suppress enemy air defenses immediately so that the Russians can move around at will, right? So that people see helicopters and see planes flying around and see Russians just dropping places. Again, they wanted this to be fast. Russians show up everywhere. That matters at once. Boom, 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 done. We're here. Now you have to dislodge us. Good luck, right? Or give up. Um, that was the plan because they can't occupy. You know, this isn't like the, the Germans invading Russia where like you have to pacify every inch and just like grind, you know, in World War II, right? And grind through um, and pacify your rear guard because you know it's going to take months, or at least you think it is. And um, and so they they tried this Blitzkrieg. So if you look at the maps of, of territory and like how much is red because the Russians occupy it, they don't really occupy it. Right. They have, you know, they'll, they the way that Russians have moved in is they have these columns that run along highways and those columns are strong. So, you know, the Ukrainians don't want to send a column of their own tanks to get in a tank battle to fight them. That'll end badly. And so, you know, what happens is the Russians are able to move pretty far. But once they get to their objective, they meet a bunch of dug in Ukrainians with a bunch of javelin missiles um, that, by the way, the United States provided them. And, and actually, during the Trump administration, we're going to talk about this. A lot of those Javelin missiles came during the Trump administration when the Obama administration wasn't willing to do it, which is very interesting, um, especially given the narrative right now. I mean, look, I, just to be fair, I'm just saying that things are a little more complicated than they seem. The fact that, you know, the fact that Putin is saying that the U.S. is a dumb country and he's defending Putin's actions here, right, just unacceptable. Um, the guy is a monster and a fool, but... Um, and I know I'm not supposed to do the thinking for you, but like, come on. So anyway, um, the Russians are not taking territory so much. And one of the really key things is they have, you know, their, their plan is not to, again, take territory inch by inch, but take population centers and then use those as staging grounds. They've not taken any population centers yet. They got into Kharkiv, they got knocked out. Um, and it's because the Ukrainians are doing an awesome job setting up ambushes. And one of the reasons the Ukrainians can set up ambushes is the United States is flying a ton of recon vehicles, like recon planes, um, with a great radar and great, you know, like ability just to zoom in with, with cameras and such. And they're using satellites, right? Superior intelligence of the ground. And they're just live streaming it to the Ukrainians. Do I know that for certain? Has it been confirmed? No. Is it true? Absolutely. And... Because uh, we, we actually have open source intelligence telling us that, yes, those American planes are flying around Poland. They're flying around Belgium. They're flying around, guess what? All those, uh, you know, Romania, all those NATO countries who have a strong interest in stopping Russia. So the Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian military, whose command and control is intact, which, again, the, the Russians tried to knock it out quickly. They failed. So they have superior intelligence. They're able to launch all these ambushes. With dudes with with javelins, right? A single person, like a team of two, can carry a javelin and a bunch of ammo for it, right? So you can take out a bunch of tanks. You can take out these armored vehicles. And what you do to F these up, right, the, the tactics are pretty simple. As you blow up some, some of the tanks in the front, and then all of a sudden the other tanks can't get around them. So they're stuck, and they're sitting ducks, right? Because, like, they're looking around. You know, it's this big tank. You're behind a bunch of cover. Um, there's only so much they can do. And if they're trying to move fast, they don't have infantry there to support them. Maybe they're in the armored vehicles. So you hit the armored vehicles with some of these, right? You don't need that many stinger missiles. You need, you know, you need some guys with javelins 
And you need some guys with guns who are able to lay down covering fire and suppress all the Russians trying to get out of these armored vehicles, and it becomes a bloodbath. And it's happened a bunch. And the Russians were not prepared for this at all. Um, and there's been a number of airstrikes against Russian columns, right? Again, part of, like, what is the plan when you're trying to take over a country quickly? What did the Americans do in 2003 against Iraq? First, you launch a bunch of missiles at everything you know that's a static static target, take it out. Then, you establish, you establish suppression of enemy air defense, S-E-A-D, SEED. And you take out their, as many of their kind of like surface air missiles as possible, you take out their airports, you take out their airplanes. Then you have command of the skies. And then you're able to fly air support for all, you know, anywhere you want. All right, very American tactic is have air support constantly. We developed this, uh, MacArthur really developed this in World War II. Um, and then you're able to move as fast as you want. You can send your columns because they're fairly well protected. They have a lot of air support. Um, you know, and if if some guys pop out uh, with, you know, and, and the thing is, like, against Iraq, they didn't have javelin missiles. They didn't have these awesome miniaturized basically bazookas, like heat-seeking bazookas or laser-targeted bazookas that are good at piercing the armor of tanks, of modern tanks. But the Ukrainians do because the Americans developed them and gave them to them. And so Russia has failed to establish air superiority. They've failed to take population centers. They've failed to cripple the command and control of um, the Ukrainians. Like the Ukrainians are, uh, you know, their military is degraded. Their air support is, or their air defense is degraded. But it ain't gone. And so the Russians thought it was gone. And they flew in a bunch of planes and those planes got knocked down. And they threw in a bunch of tank columns. And they weren't able to get air support. And they got blown up. And they paratrooped a bunch of dudes into Ukraine. And those guys got surrounded and destroyed. It is not going well for Russia. Um, And I can't help but be delighted by that. As much as the human cost of war is terrible, um... The, given that Russia has invaded Ukraine for the future of world peace, the best possible outcome is that Russia gets its butt kicked so that future aggressors think twice and thrice and understand that deterrence is not dead. The reason that Operation Desert Storm in 1991 was so important was to show that deterrence is not dead. Right? The West will not stand by and let you do this. And so... So things went have gone really, really badly for Russia in the first five days. Like way, way worse than anyone could have imagined. Um, it's been a train wreck for them. And yes, they're right up against Kiev. And they've been trying to invade it for three or four days. And they haven't. And each day this drags out gets worse for Russia. Ukraine brings up and trains more reservists. More weapons, more fuel, more money shows up from the West. There's a bandwagoning effect going on, Right. Think of how think of how like frustratingly slowly some of these um, some of these sanctions are getting rolled out, right? Swift just happened. You know the Swift uh, bank cancellations. We'll talk about those in a sec. Just got just happened over the weekend. Well, they haven't even really hit the Russian markets yet. They're going to hit them bad Monday. Um, you know Denmark and Estonia and Sweden and Germany just decided to send a bunch of arms and armaments to Ukraine. Imagine if Russia had been able to take Kiev even by today. Even after a fifth day, none of that would have happened. It would have been a fait accompli. It would have been done, right? Speed was of the essence, and they failed. And so you have this bandwagon effect where people are like, holy smokes, the Ukrainians could win. Let's invest in them winning, right? NATO, NATO is like now licking its chops strategically to give the Ukrainians to invest money and armament into giving the Ukrainians as much as possible to just to bloody the Russians as much as possible, to destroy as much Russian hardware as possible, to unfortunately kill as many Russian troops as possible. And I say unfortunately, not that, you know, not that it's just, it just, you know, seeing humans die is terrible, but um, to kill as many Russian troops as possible, to make this ugly and awful and make Russia lose, which it could. It's not over yet, but they could. Um, So Russia slowed down. Russia stopped. um, And... You know, of course, morale builds for the Ukrainians. So you had hundreds of thousands of people have already fled Ukraine, but there's a 42 million person country. So you've got 41 million some odd who are still there. Half of them are men. Right. And so like maybe, you know, you cut the kids out. Maybe you're down to like 10 million men who could fight. 
900,000 of them are in the reserves, by the way. Right? Russia only has 900,000 troops total. They only have 200-some-odd thousand built up around, um, you know, around Ukraine. And so what happens if you start bringing those? You know, it's going to take time. It takes time to bring those reserves to bear because it's not trivial to travel around the country. And so each day this drags out, and each day the Ukrainians believe they can win, more and more reservists join. More and more Western countries send them, send them stuff. Time is not on Russia's side. Each day that goes by, Ukraine gets stronger and Russia gets weaker. Each day that goes by, Ukraine's morale goes up, Russia's morale goes down. And so the Blitzkrieg failed. And again, it's not over. It still hangs in the balance. You know, the Ukrainians have to fight hard. Um, the West has to figure out, you know, like there a lot has to go right for Ukraine. You know, Russia could break through. It could just launch a bunch of missiles at the right spot and blow up a hole and break through and get deep into Kiev and... You know, and then what? Well, it doesn't mean it's over even if they're deep in Kiev because it could become Stalingrad. I don't know. The, again, Ukrainian morale is very high. The Ukrainians are, are clearly not willing to let Russia win. They're, they are not going to just give up. And so, you know, what happens if you pour into Kiev? It gets ugly. There is some bad news as of this time. Um, Mariupol, Mariupol in the southeast. Again, I'm not good with these names is largely surrounded. So that's the like the city on the southern coast that is like just outside the occupied Donbass region. It appears to be largely surrounded. Um, so is it going to be under siege? Maybe. Um, is it going to be taken? Maybe. Um, the, the Ukrainians, like the Ukrainian military originally, their posture had 120,000 of their, I think 200 some odd thousand troops in the east. And so it could be that there's like help on the way. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but like Kharkiv had been surrounded. Kharkiv had even been, um, you know, troops had gotten into Kharkiv and they got repelled. So is Mariupol being surrounded mean it's going to fall inevitably? No. Um, it could just, again, slow the Russians down more. Um, Kiev is maybe surrounded. There's conflicting info on this. Um, uh, it, you know, open source intelligence suggests that the Russians are still mostly in the northwest area of Kiev and somewhat the northeast and that the south is somewhat open. But you do have Russians that have like kind of gotten a little bit behind Kiev further to the south. Um, like you don't have this kind of like siege the way you did, you know, Antioch or Jerusalem back during the Crusades. But um, but it does the, the mayor of Kiev said they are surrounded, which suggests that it means that he doesn't see a path to get supplies in and people out um, and, and people in. But, you know, there's a whole lot of space in Western Ukraine with a lot of people who are very pro-Western who can still arm themselves. And, you know, and the thing is, the West can get like you don't necessarily have to get stuff to Kiev directly in order for them to fight, right? Kiev isn't the only, you know, like Ukraine owns right now, again, it's not trivial to travel around, but Ukraine owns 95% of Ukraine right now. And so what that means, you know, in Western Ukraine is up against, you know, it's up against Moldova, but, sorry, I mean, Southwest Ukraine is up against Moldova, but Western Ukraine, where you can just take highways towards Kiev is up against what? Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania. What are they? Ooh, NATO, right? And so NATO can just shuffle in supplies through that. The Russians are nowhere close, nowhere close to be able to shutting down that border. So what does that mean? What that means is that the, the West can continue to get supplies into Ukraine and that huge population in the West of Ukraine, which is where most of the population is, that huge population in the West of Ukraine um, ton of reservists, ton of civilians willing to arm themselves can get armed and they can move in towards Kiev. And does that mean that, you know, I don't know where Kiev, cause like the professional armies do really matter here. Where are those professional armies compared to Kiev, um, and Kharkiv and the East? I don't know. Like, do you have professional units in the West that can potentially break into the siege of Kiev? I don't know, but you certainly have a lot of people, um, and so, and you'll get a lot of weapons. So it's, you know, again, Kiev just needs to hold. That's the thing. It can be surrounded all day. It just needs to hold. The longer it holds, the worse things get for Russia. Um, because there's, there's not just the military front where Russia's in trouble. There's the economic and the will to fight front. And the will to fight thing matters strategically, right? So we talked about kind of like tactically how, um, and I, I even said strategically before, but I really meant like the army's will to fight is one thing. 
Um, but the the will to fight of the Russian people is another thing um, for a couple of reasons. One of them is that, you know, if Putin gets desperate, he might, you know, try to pull up reserves and that might get harder. Um, but more importantly is that, like, Putin is not as clever a guy as everyone thought he was, but he's not a complete idiot. And the thing is, like, at the end of the day, if you lose... If you lose support from a population for a war, like each day it goes on is going to get harder for you. Up to and including Putin could be assassinated, right? Absolutely no doubt about it. This is something that U.S. intelligence talked about for a long time. Putin could just be straight up assassinated. It's likely he's hiding in a bunker right now um, from his own people, right? He's hiding in a bunker from like potentially disgruntled powerful Russians because there are a lot of powerful Russians um, that he seems to have done a pretty good job managing to date. But, you know, some of those Russians are super rich oligarchs and some of those Russians are uh, powerful military leaders. And, uh, you know, both of them could, they could work together to kill him. Um, but, but most, but what's, what's going on broadly is that Russia's economy is suffering and, uh, there are there are people in Russia that are only going to stand for that for so long um, before they start to make things a problem, right? Already, it turns out, this war is apparently pretty unpopular in Russia. What, are we going to get accurate poll numbers out of Russia? Absolutely not. But there are protests all over Russia, not just St. Petersburg, despite them being illegal and despite people getting arrested. Thousands of them, it seems. Um, and it's... One of one of the things about what the West is doing is trying to make sure that like the Russians understand just how much they've effed up and just how pissed off the West is um, and trying to break through Russian state media and propaganda, um, you know, because it turns out that Russian state media and propaganda is is totally just lying through its teeth about what's going on. And so what's the West doing? Well, Russian aircraft are now totally cut off from Western airspace. Like, you just can't fly West from Russia. Um, or rather, I mean, you can. They're probably not going to get shot down. But they're not allowed to. And they're not allowed. They're not going to be cleared to land anymore. Ships as well. They can't land in Western ports. Um, they're, in fact, some of them are being seized. Um, the SWIFT ban is a really, really big deal. So SWIFT is the banking system, is like the kind of integrated banking system that allows banks to trade with each other, create liquidity for each other, take out microloans, um, tr and trade currency. Um, and so uh, if you cut off, uh, it also just like makes it hard to sell big packages of stuff like, oh, I don't know, oil commodities, right? So it's very hard to like sell a bunch of oil if your bank... If the bank where your your money is that you want to accept money from isn't included in SWIFT, becomes very hard. Like if I'm buying a lot of oil and you're selling a lot of oil, the banks that we use, because I keep my money in a bank, you keep your money in a bank, use SWIFT. Well, if your money, if your bank is cut off from SWIFT, it's very hard for me to pay you, right? Um, this is one of like the beauties of the modern system is you don't have to like literally carry cash around to buy stuff. Well, if 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 the SWIFT ban holds and it's not total. Um, it's only a bunch of banks, but if the SWIFT ban holds, um, uh, it's going to get really hard indeed uh, for Russia to sell stuff um, or buy stuff. You know, right now, certainly nobody in the West is like, you know, exporting stuff to Ukraine. Um, so it's it's becoming difficult through a number of directions to spend foreign reserves to get rubles, right? So. Russia has this like Fortress Russia thing where they have uh, a apparently whopping 60 billion in uh, foreign reserves. But if you can't sell them to get rubles, it doesn't effing matter. Now, what's interesting, of course, is a lot of Russian people right now don't want rubles. Um, so this is like the early 1990s. There are lines of ATMs and um, and banks that, you know, that trade currency. Um, there are long, long, long lines of ATMs right now because people are panicking that the Russian economy is going to go into a free fall. So there's a bit of a run on the bank going on right now. Um, uh, again, especially trying to get foreign currency. Um, and so w one of the leading indicators we have for what's going on is, you know, again, like if you ever, if you ever travel to Europe, there's like all sorts of kind of cashiers around where you can, well, there used to be because, uh, there used to be a lot more because they didn't have the Euro. Um, but you still have a lot. Uh, there are, but like at international airports and stuff like that, there are banks that like, you know, buy and sell, you know, sell currency. Um, 
the ruble was trading before the war. The ruble was trading at seventy-seven to the dollar. Right now, it's trading at like uh, at like eighty-nine to the dollar. Um, the Tinkoff Bank is buying rubles at one point is one hundred fifty-three. It seems to have gone up to one hundred and seventy-one to the dollar. So um, you know, on the ground, the ruble is worth half as much as it was a week ago. Half. So that's bad. Um, there's like all sorts of little stuff being done to make the, the lives of Russians generally miserable and help them understand how isolated and tied off they are and how kind of like they're and, and just like let them know that they're like not allowed to participate in, you know, with the world like normal um, because of this. So FedEx has stopped shipments. Google, YouTube, Meta, all that stuff are shutting stuff down and demonetizing platforms. Um a bunch of countries are declaring that they won't play the Russians uh, in World Cup qualifications. Um, you know, F1 racing has been taken out of Russia. And so you have all these, like, civil ways of letting the Russians know that they're isolated. And if you have a people whose, like, morale is weak and they don't particularly want this war, this is going to make them resentful not of, I mean, maybe of the West, but certainly of their leader for dragging them into this. Um If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And uh, longer term, longer term, there are huge implications going on right now. So Nord Stream has been, Nord Stream 2 has been canceled. So Germany will not be buying, will building a pipeline to buy gas directly from Russia. They're upgrading their ports, the Germans are, in order to accept shipments of natural gas. Guess where that's coming from? The United States and Canada. So uh, the German, and and they may, you know, I don't know the pipeline system as well as I should, but like, could it be easier for the United States to become one of the major suppliers of gas to uh, Europe as a whole through Germany? I don't know. Um, But uh, also those oligarchs that we talked about, they're starting to complain publicly. They're starting to tweet that the war has to end, that peace has to be restored. So, just really, really, really bad stuff for Russia right now. Really bad. Um, so Ukraine could totally win, which is so such a shock and honestly just incredible. Okay, so those are all the ways that Russia could lose. Again, uh, at some point, if if people get ticked off enough and Russia gets damaged enough, um, I, I think, you know, look, this is obvious enough that I'm sure Biden and, and team are considering it, but um, Putin could just get offed. And, like, that would change a lot of things, which we'll talk about in a sec. So um, here's what might happen if Russia loses. First and most immediately and obviously, there is a strategic collapse. Um, Ultimately, like, look, Russia, after this, especially if they lose, but even if they win an ugly war, um, is really toast as a major player in the world. Um, At least for a very long time. Although I, I can't really imagine that ever changing. Um, because again, we talked about last time, Russia has been playing with a losing hand. Um, they get weaker and weaker, their population's declining. The ruble actually gets less and less valuable over time. Um, 
the West is like over the next 30 years going to become less dependent on oil and gas, although oil and gas will get more expensive in the meantime. So like that was kind of trending Russia's way. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just like not really looking good long term for Russia. And now, um, you know, Russia sees, I think rightly so, NATO encroaching on its borders as a long term strategic threat for its ability to really do anything, um, including exert its power elsewhere. And uh, there were like two countries that, actually three, that Russia really, really, really did not want to join NATO, Finland, Ukraine, and Georgia. Now, we don't know about Georgia. I don't know about Georgia. But Finland has already put NATO, like as of now, in its parliamentary agenda, when again, like two weeks ago, the prime minister had said that NATO would not become part of her agenda um, in her term. Now it is. Ta-da! Finland's totally going to join NATO. If Russia loses, Ukraine will join NATO. 100%. No doubt. Um, I can't imagine that not happening. And so what that means is, like, you've now got Russia totally surrounded. Um, Moscow and St. Petersburg are massively threatened if there's any kind of war. And it's not that NATO would want to invade Russia as much as Russia would like to pretend that's true. It's more that, it's more that, like, if Russia Fs around, they find, now they find out. And they find out quickly. And so you have to defend, you have to find a way to defend St. Petersburg and Moscow while you're doing anything, which just makes it harder to do anything. Um, and so Russia can't really be a major player. Um, I mean, they're also just, they're losing a lot of expensive hardware really fast. Um, you know, for an economy like Russia's, like losing hundreds of tanks and hundreds of armored vehicles and planes and, you know, and like fairly, you know, fairly senior veteran um Military members, like if they lose 10,000 troops, holy simoleons, it means a very weak military for a long time. And again, if, if, well, not just again, but, you know, you can rebuild, right? Like the, the Romans just rebuilt their military after they lost everything in the Battle of Cannae. But um, that doesn't work out if your economy tanks. Like you can't go rebuild your military if the economy tanks. And the economy is probably going to tank. The other thing that's happening strategically again, whether or not they win, is NATO countries are starting to spend money again. So Germany, just in a totally unprecedented move, just decided to spend more than 2% of their GDP on their military. Um, you know, and that's a, turns out that's a provision under NATO. And I remember Trump complaining about it, right? It was a policy he had to try to get NATO to spend more than 2% on their military. He failed because all he did was whine. Um, he didn't, and like, you know, whine and berate them. He didn't really have a plan for it. Um, you know, NATO is not whole NATO allies have been great allies. Um, but guess what? NATO just got united again. Um, and NATO is going to start spending money. So all of a sudden, not only is Russia's military much weaker, and they're not going to have the money to rebuild it, but suddenly NATO's military is going to become a lot stronger in Europe. Oops. Sorry, Russia. Well, I'm not sorry, but like game over, right? Um, like this is looking like an incredibly bad move. And that's why this is so risky. Right. Like if you do this fait accompli, we talked about this in the last episode, like, you know, because you got away with Georgia, because you got away with Crimea, everyone felt like there was nothing they could do. Um, You think, you know, you're Putin, you think like, well, if we do a fait accompli and we in one or two days take Kiev, knock out the government and say, ha ha, we're in charge now. You know, maybe the the West's response is lethargic and it has been a little lethargic. But again, every day that this goes on gives the West more time, gives like Biden more time to run around to. Um, European leaders and say, hey, hey, get on board with this. Get on board with with closing airspace, which just got closed today. Get on board with um, knocking Russia out of SWIFT, which happened yesterday. He could run, run around. like there's, And there's like enough like outrage and fervor at this point. Again, because the fate of company is not there. Western people are seeing the... Um, Western people are seeing the carnage and the destruction. They're rooting for the Ukrainians and all this stuff. And so they might be willing to put up with five bucks a gallon of gas. And so guess what? You start cutting off Russia um, from being able to export oil. Oh, right. And so this is why this is such an incredible disaster. Um, So the sanctions keep building up and keep building up and keep building up. And it's going to... Again, like the like Russia is only going to the, the only way Russia loses is if this drags out. And if this drags out, um, there will be more sanctions and then Russia will lose. And. And like those sanctions won't just go away. 
right? At this point, the world is so turned against Russia. It's so clear that Putin is Hitler. And it's like, like this, this flip switched, this switch flipped, this, this, sorry, this switch flipped where people are like, well, we really don't want it. We really don't want to, like, we really want to avoid having to deal with pain. We really want to like keep our head in the sand and like stay in denial that Putin is totally Hitler 2.0. Um, and now it's way too far gone and it's way too clear that he's Hitler 2.0. And now everyone's like, okay, fine. The winning move is not to like put our heads in the sand and hope it's going to work out. The winning move is to suck it up, take the economic blow and crush Russia into the dirt economically. Um, and yeah, it's not. And like if, when they withdraw, um, like they may negotiate something. Um, and that's likely what's going to happen is Russia will like negotiate that certain sanctions get lifted if they withdraw. And then and that gives them leverage because, of course, the West would go like, well, the humanitarian thing to do and the thing to do to help Ukraine, because war is always chaotic. It's the outcome is all is never inevitable. Um, you know, if it gets them to withdraw, you know, we'll say if you withdraw, we'll lift this and. Um, and probably hold themselves to it to protect the Ukrainian people and like give the West time to again try to like you know get money in there and get get doctors without borders and the Red Cross and such in there um, uh, and and try to and then you know more hardware to try to like you know turn Ukraine into a big porcupine and so um, and so some of these sanctions may lift but not all of them and so Russia's in trouble for a long time especially because even if the sanctions lift at this point. Um, and again, the longer this drags on, the more committed the West gets to building infrastructure, um, you know, both kind of like financial infrastructure and physical infrastructure that is less and less dependent on Russia so that they don't end up in this situation again where Russia has this leverage. So there's an economic turn for the worst for Russia. Um, and then finally, there's potential political collapse, right? This really feels like it'd be hard for it not to be the fall of Putin. He has pissed off a lot of people. Um, he has pissed off a lot of the military. He's pissed off a lot of powerful Russians, including the oligarchs. Um, and I wonder, like, part of me wonders, like, is he terminally ill? Is he making this sort of, like, last-ditch effort at trying to secure the future of a Russian empire, right? Before he dies, he finally gets to fulfill his, like, weird Hitler-esque dream of uniting the Russian and Ukrainian people um, and building back the Russian empire to its former glory, make Russia great again. I don't know. Um, but he's clearly acting like that, but, but he has lost so much support that like, I don't see, certainly like he can't move on as if things are normal. Um, and he's going to have a leash put on him if he's still in charge. And the, the only way he survives is if the succession plans for him are so poor that the oligarchs would worry just about total, um, you know, total chaos within Russia if he goes, but they're certainly going to start building succession plans if there aren't any. Um, and they may, you know, Russia's a, Russia's an odd place and their politics are always, their, their internal politics always play out very differently from how everyone else's does. So it's kind of hard. To, it's actually kind of hard to say like what's going to happen, but there could be a form of political collapse, which would be you know interesting. Um, a few other things to, to put on this. So, so Russia's in a lot of trouble is a long way of putting it. Um, there's a few other things that are going to change here, especially if Russia loses. One of them is that warfare is totally going to get redefined again. And why do, what do I mean by that? Well, Russia is fighting the last war, right? You, you've probably heard about this. Like most major armies end up, end up fighting, you know, early on fighting the last war. And then they learn during the next war what to do next. Um, and it, it's just chronic. So, for example, in World War II, um, Winston Churchill was a big fan of like, and so were the Japanese of like throwing around big battleships, massive, right? And it turns out a little plane with a bomb, can, right? There goes your battleship. And so investing all this money in massive battleships was the last war. The next war, because you had, uh, military aviation was the aircraft carrier, right? And so those aircraft carriers only came into vogue during the Second World War, and the Americans had so much industrial power that they developed an advantage in it. World War I, right, you had tons of cavalry charges. For a long time, for a long time, you had cavalry charges right into machine gun fire. Um, it seems silly now, but again, it's all in retrospect. And so how is Russia fighting the last war now? Well, they tried shock and awe tactics and a blitzkrieg that didn't work. Right, and the reason shock and awe and blitzkrieg didn't work is be, and the, the reason they worked in the past was a couple things. One of them was that um, 
individual soldiers, like to, to stop big armored columns, you needed big armored columns or you needed air support. That was just the rule. If you didn't have air support, you weren't, or, or your own big armored columns, you weren't stopping big armored columns. And the Ukrainians don't have a bunch of big armored columns. I think mean, they have armor, but they don't have a bunch of big armored columns. Um, and they have okay air support. Um, but how did you take out air support? What you had was you, uh, you know, you, you fired a bunch of missiles and you flew in your jets and you blew up their runways and you did all that very, very quickly. Um, and so again, that's how the United States just made the invasion of Iraq look like a breeze twice, 91 and 2003. And so that worked. And it also worked because, um, you know, the shock and awe factor of like, you develop this fait accompli, I keep using this term. And in war, Again, that the morale and the will to resist matters. And so if you do all this very quickly, boom, 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 right? People just get two days of like, holy Samoans, like just totally overwhelmed, shocked and awed. And then like you look up and literally as the dust is settling, literally, you have Russians at the, you know, in the Ukrainian parliament house saying we're in charge now, right? You can win that way. You can totally win that way. And so they tried to do that. But why didn't it work this time? Well, a couple things. One of them is that miniaturization, uh, like a big technological change, miniaturization of military technology is something that they did not account for. So miniaturization has meant that individual soldiers can carry weapons that knock down tanks, helicopters, and planes, right? So what it means is like you think you've, you've established suppression of enemy air defense, but you've not. Now, it turns out that the Russians just also did a bad job of it, but... Um, you think you've established suppression of enemy air defense, but you have all these like fairly small things, either man carried, like either man portable, or like just like very small and easy to hide um, devices that have like their own radar that can just like you know you you hear a plane coming, you you know you you the radar is off, you pop it on, right, and so now your you know now your your air defense thing is vulnerable, but you've got the initiative because you see that plane and then you fire, you blow it up and then you move it. Right. And so it's very hard to play this like cat and mouse game um, where or it's very hard to win this cat and mouse game if you're the cat because you're a cat with a big bell on you. And the mice all have like, you know, the mice all have heat seeking guns. And so and so what happens is, you know, you, you open up this thing, you throw the radar on, you blow up that plane. It all takes a couple minutes and then you get the heck out of there. And so when the Russians are like, OK, well, like we saw a radar ping from that area, we're going to go look for it. It's not there anymore. And so you have man portable stuff that does this. You have um, otherwise like track portable stuff that does this. And if you have not, if you have not just established like 95% air dominance and you don't have a massive air force that's just flying around all the time, just sucking up tons of fuel, you can't, you can't win that game. Um, similarly, if you don't, have not established massive air superiority and it's harder to establish air superiority than it used to be against a well-armed military with modern technology is what I'm saying, which Ukraine now is because of all the help that they've gotten from NATO. Um, so against a well-armed modern military with good command and control, with good air recon, which the Americans are providing, right? Um, so it's really hard to truly establish uh, suppression of enemy air defense. And then it's also, uh, it's also with that very hard to just race a bunch of columns down um, a highway without them getting taken out by some some dudes with javelins on their backs, right? So if you can, you and javelins aren't that expensive, not compared to tanks, right? So it used to be like, you want to knock a tank down, you either need a plane, much more expensive than a tank, or a tank, as expensive as a tank. But what if you just had some dudes who were like, don't need that much training on a javelin thing that's a lot cheaper, right? So all of a sudden, asymmetric warfare really starts to work, not just in urban areas, which we saw during the occupation of Iraq, right? Asymmetric warfare works because you can just hide. You can use IEDs, blow stuff. Like you make it very hard to occupy. Asymmetric warfare, we knew, made it very hard to occupy if the will was there. But we didn't know that asymmetric warfare was so effective in a mobile war, right? It used to be that this, again, shock and awe, blitzkrieg, high-speed mobile war won. But not anymore because of the miniaturization of this technology and the ability to just like have a few dudes pop up, launch a bunch of um, javelins, and boom, there you go. Uh, your, your convoy of troops and armor has suddenly just stopped. And now a bunch more dudes can show up with javelins and blow you to bits. And that's happened over and over again. The Russians were not ready for the javelins. And the javelins are a major game changer on the ground. It's really interesting.
Um, so, uh, because these individual, you know, because it's like very hard to take out individual, a lot of individual soldiers who are spread out. Again, this is a little like the, you know, this is a little bit like the Americans in the Revolutionary War, right? Minutemen, people who would like just like pop up behind bushes and like from behind trees and start sniping at you. Um, because like gun barrel technology gotten just good enough by then that you didn't just have to march in formation and like volley, right? Same thing here. So um, it's really interesting uh, seeing war redefined. It's really interesting seeing how David can beat Goliath with, guess what? Big old sling, you know, like a slingshots, right? Like you, you hit, you're hitting Goliath in the head with a sling is, is pretty much literally what's happening. It's really interesting to see. Um, and it's why I think the Ukrainians can seriously win from what we've been seeing. Um, and I didn't see it coming. Right, and a bunch of military, uh, like you know, U.S. intelligence are like, yeah, we totally, you know, like everyone admitted, like we totally did not see this coming. Um, and and the last thing I want to know is like, could this have been prevented, right? So like, so you know, what if Russia loses? Like, they're certainly not going to do this again. But like, what allowed them to do this in the first place? And you know, we foreign policy uh, wonks were big believers in deterrence. Um, like it's a pretty common thing across, you know, it's a pretty common thing across uh, the the foreign policy world and the, you know, international relations study world and war study world. Um, deterrence, right? If you do bad thing, bad thing will happen to you, right? This is why Operation Desert Storm was so important. Hey, you know, I, I, the world took notice when Iraq invaded Kuwait and Iraq got its butt kicked. And they didn't do it. And when the thing is Russia, they're like, well, we have nukes, so you're totally not going to invade us the way you did Iraq. Sure. But there's stuff you can do between here and there. And the, the, the West really didn't do it. They did a lot of, like, kind of token sanctions. Um, uh, but when, in particular, like, had the world united like this after Crimea and said, we're going to cut off, you know, we're going to cut off Russian air, um, uh, air travel, we're going to cut off Russian banks, we're going to cancel Nord Stream 2. We're going to start trying to wean our dependence off of Russian, um, Russian oil. Finland and Ukraine are going to join NATO, right? Stuff like that. Had that stuff happened, Russia would not be invading right now. One, Russia would be pretty crippled. But two, it would be clear that, it would be clear that like, the forces of good and order and freedom and democracy are willing to stand up, right? And you have to be willing to stand up, willing to use your tools, willing to take some risks, willing to accept some pain in order to enforce deterrence. And there's no reason that this couldn't have happened after Crimea. There's no reason it shouldn't have happened after Crimea. I remember being incensed after Crimea because Russia had just taken and formally annexed territory against its will of another nation for the first time since World War II. It was a watershed moment, and we treated it like not that much had happened. And it's just, it's just not true. It's an incredibly pivotal moment. And... Putin totally got away with it. He completely got away with it because the West was weak. There's just no way around it. The West was weak. It wasn't willing to really enforce consequences for that. And so he got away with it. And so why, you know, why not take the next step? You know, I invaded Crimea. Get away with it. Why not invade more of Ukraine? I'll get away with it. The West will be scattered. Um, and he was wrong. But had the West united and shown, like, this has gone way too far after Crimea, there probably would have been deterrence. Um, and it's a shame. And I'm actually going to go back to some of my notes from our 2017 episode on Ukraine just to show that I'm not, like, making this up in retrospect. Um, so, you know, we talked about in 2017 that Ukraine is Russia's biggest concern. Um, it's, you know, that area in Ukraine and Belarus is an historical invasion route to Russia on a big flat open plain that makes it easy for large armies to invade. Um, it was the frontier during many of Russia's wars with the Ottoman empire. So in 2014, um, after what appeared to Russia, like two decades of NATO encirclement, despite what they think was a pledge not to Russia's support for an insurgency in Ukraine's East, um, after it appeared that a revolution was set to install a pro-Western government, uh, and they took Crimea, they annexed Crimea, um, and so in 2015, and again, under the Obama administration, the United States, pretty much alone, because the rest of Europe wasn't doing it, um, began providing non-lethal aid to Ukraine. Um, and so there was a debate in the United States, again, after the annexation of Crimea, after the annexation of territory of a sovereign nation, 
there was a debate whether the United States should provide lethal support in addition to non-lethal support. Those in favor of lethal support argued that Russia needed to face meaningful consequences for its annexation of Crimea. I'm just going to say I was in favor of that at the time. Um, those who opposed said that by arming Ukraine and thereby increasing the chance of Russian service members getting killed with U.S. weapons, it threatened escalation with Russia. So fear. Fear and weakness define this. Um, and so in 2014... Congress passed the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, a very American name, which was set to appropriate $350 million in security assistance, um, including anti-tank and anti-armor um, weaponry, right? So javelin missiles, right? So in 2014, we were set to do it. But President Obama, however, decided not to authorize the sale of U.S. arms or provide financing for weapons to purchase, for purchase to Ukraine. During the Obama administration, the United States did not provide lethal aid to Ukraine at any point. Despite Congress saying, hey, you know, Congress passed a bill um, set to do it, the Obama administration said, no, we're not even going to send, we're not even going to let them buy weapons. That's how afraid we were of Russia. And under the Trump administration, that actually changed. So in December 2017, $41.5 million towards sniper rifle systems, ammunition, and affiliated parts. The first major lethal aid from the United States was in early 2018 with a $47 million sale of, guess what, Javelin anti-tank systems being used today to uh, punch Putin in the nose. February 2019, or 2019, the Trump administration notified Congress that funds provided by the DOD's Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative would go towards lethal aids. The 2019 budget increases authorized funding by $50 million to $250 million and requires that at least $50 million of that total amount be used for lethal aid. In other words, the United States, as of um, 2019, was sending weapons to a country that is uh, killing Russian servicemen or Russian proxies fighting uh, in Russians' interests. So it's not a full-scale proxy war, but it wouldn't be exaggerating to call a low-level proxy conflict between the U.S. and Russia. That's what we wrote at the time and what we said at the time. So for as much as um, you know, Trump threatened to withhold more security assistance to Ukraine in order to force it to do this like BS investigation of Biden's son um, for political purposes, the whole idea that like the whole idea that like it was in order to help Putin in some way, bullshit. It's just not true. It was, it was like Trump cares more about Trump than he does Putin. Um, I, I still don't know quite what, Trump's love of like whether Trump is compromised by Putin in some way or just he loves dictators so much because they're tough and powerful. We won't know for a long time, but we'll know someday. But it's certainly the case that under the Trump administration, a lot of this lethal aid went to Ukraine when it didn't before. It didn't during the initial um, Russian support of the Donbass region uprising. It didn't during Crimea. And the rest of Europe did basically nothing. There were a bunch of token sanctions. And so Yes, the West is like the West has to bear some responsibility for not. And this is my opinion. The West has to bear some responsibility. But the fact is um, that the West did not use deterrence. It did not impose meaningful consequences on Russia when they occupied and annexed territory from a sovereign nation. And did that contribute to Russia invading now? Heck yes. No doubt. So just remember that. You know, I, I have my own feelings about deterrence and foreign policy and and the need for the need for strength in the face of evil and aggression a lot of people disagree with me um, but i feel pretty i've always felt pretty strongly about it um and so i hope this is an opportunity to at least go back and look on those facts and think about how did you feel about it at the time what do you think was the right thing and what do you think what lessons do you think the west will learn from this in the future so um with that my friends, uh, I'm going to sign off for now. I don't know how many more Ukraine updates I'll have. Uh, probably at least one by the time this is all wrapped up. Um, you know, my heart goes out to all the folks in Ukraine out there. And, and instead of asking you for, um, instead of asking you for money for reconsider, um, I want to encourage you to potentially donate to um, UNICEF, Doctors Without Borders, Voices of Children, Sunflower of Peace, the International Committee of the Red Cross, Save the Children or the UNHCR um, to support, uh, you know, the, you know, w whether or not you want to support the Ukrainian military is one thing, but uh, to help the Ukrainian people who are being hurt and displaced uh, by this war. Uh, I, I've left a link 
where NPR shares a lot of these um, organizations. I've done a lot of research. I like them too. So uh, please consider donating to uh, help the Ukrainian people who are being hurt by this. And with that, my friends, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. This is Eric signing off. Glory to Ukraine. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.